Buongiorno everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specifications and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Auth0. The season is sponsored by the OpenID Foundation. In this episode, we focus on Financial Grade API, better known as FAPI. Our esteemed guest today is Thorsten Loderstedt. I apologize for how, however way I buttered your last name. CTO at yes.com and all-star contributor to the ITF and the OpenID Foundation. Welcome, Thorsten. Yeah, welcome, Vittorio, and uh, thank you for having me here and you did a great job in pronouncing my, my name. So I, I, I have heard uh, uh, worse than that. So thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and thanks for joining me today. So as it is tradition, can we start with uh, how you ended up working in identity? Yeah, sure. To start with, my background is in, in software engineering and, and software architecture. And uh, after my, my study, I worked as an IT consultant. And after quite some time, I think 10 or 11 years in 2007, I was hired for a project at Deutsche Telekom's product development unit in Germany to help them to develop and operate their identity uh, management system. So I didn't have a real clue of identity, but I had some security background at that time, which helped. And the the identity group there uh, does consumer identity management. And most people don't know, even though Deutsche Telekom is Germany's or one of the biggest landline and uh, mobile operator, they also have a a huge set of services, digital services, and uh, they've got a a central user identity management system with a web SSO experience and so on. Quite interesting stuff, high volume, high scale. And at that time when I joined, they did web SSO based on proprietary uh, protocols. They had done experiments with SAML and Liberty Alliance, but their proprietary protocol uh, seemed to better fit their their expectations. It was simpler, (laughs) by the way. And one of the first projects or one of the first things I did uh, with Deutsche Telekom was I designed their token service. Because at that time, around 2007, 8, 9, they built the first third-party APIs for developers. And with the advent of the iPhone, uh, mobile applications needed backing by APIs, and we built that uh, security token service. And conceptually, it was based on Kerberos because I had, I had Kerberos experience uh, from previous project, and I really liked the concept of self-contained tickets slash tokens and audience-restricted tokens slash tickets. You didn't do WS Trust? You did your own thing? No, we did We did our own thing. It was really ugly based on SOAP, and, and but we used SAML as the token format at that time. I think it was a bit simpler because WS Trust, especially the token service, is a really complex thing. Really generic, oh, but yeah. also really complex, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. from time to time kidding kidding with, with my colleagues about that time. Uh, you know that my uh, license plate on my car is still WS Star. Oh, really? Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I remind myself of those times. The, the reason that we based that conception in Kerberos also might explain why I still am a, a real fan of self-contained access tokens, because we learned that those give you incredible advantages in terms of scalability and performance. 
And I also like uh, all the answer restricted access tokens. And I have always built systems that use that pattern. And we then, we then adopted over time, adopted uh, OAuth 1. I didn't like OAuth 1 very much because of the complexity caused by the uh, application level signature. Developers really struggled to implement it correctly. Yeah. And the problem always was if it goes wrong, the mechanism just tells you, well, something is wrong, but not what. And it also explains why I am all of my professional career tried to circumvent application level signatures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the end, we adopted OAuth 1, but we use it as kind of a refresh token mechanism in, a, in addition to our proprietary mechanism. And I think around end of 2009, one of our architects approached me and told me, hey, Thorsten, here's a no specification that looks like something we do. And I took a look on that and it was OAuth, the OAuth rep specification. I don't know whether we remember that that one. Oh, absolutely. I interviewed uh, Dick in last season and we mentioned the uh, wrap very briefly. Yeah. And uh, we realized, I mean, that's very similar to what we do. Yeah, let's go and contribute and potentially we can learn something. And so in, in the beginning of 2010, I joined the OAuth working group and yeah, I learned a lot since then. And I also started to contribute. My first contribution was I did the OAuth security threat model and security considerations for OAuth 2, which was also the, the basis for the uh, security considerations in RFC 6749. Yeah, and since then I yeah authored several other drafts and contributed to OpenID Connect as well. And in 2017, I joined Yes.com. The focus of my standardization work and also my work changed a bit because now I'm more working in the in the context of identity assurance higher level identity assurance, and clearly financial grade APIs. That's fantastic, which is a, a great, great segue to the star of the day, which is uh, FAPI. So can we start with uh, what is FAPI and uh, why now? Like, uh, Assume that I know nothing, which is uh, kind of true, and uh, tell me high level what FAPI stands for. Okay, Vittorio, I, I, I'm trying my best to explain it. So FAPI, first of all, is what we call a security uh, profile. I would say it's a security and interoperability profile for, for OAuth, mainly uh, intended to be used for open banking scenarios. In that context, we also have defined and incubated new specifications as they were needed. Open banking itself, what, what, what does the, the term stands for? Open banking basically means that um, the financial institution you are banking with allows you to use the data with the bank, your transactions, um, the capability for payments to use with third-party applications. So it opens up all those capabilities and assets. And this clearly means there is a need for APIs. And APIs typically means also these days OAuth. And what we had to learn when we, when we started to work on open banking is there were two challenges with OAuth when it comes to open banking. The first challenge is security. Traditional OAuth, when I say traditional OAuth, I mean RFC 6749, something like that. So the core specification. The core specification and, and the way it's used today had some security issues. And they were discovered around 2015, 16. I think you talked about the, those issues with Daniel Fett in, in, in one of this, the sessions, a mix-up attack, for example, code replay and so on. And you have to make sure in an open banking scenario, even more than in other scenarios, that these kind of attacks are copped with because otherwise people can access your account data, 
which are very sensitive potentially. Attackers could um, in, initiate payments on your behalf. Uh, I think that's something you don't want. That doesn't sound good at all. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we, we had to, to cope with the security problem. And the other aspect is OAuth is a framework, which means it's a tool set. You can build great solutions based on it, and they all look similar, but they are not the same. Meaning, if you have two different OAuth deployments, it's very likely that they do not work the same way. So you have to adjust your code in order to make them work uh, for those two different deployments. And now put that in the open banking scenario. In the European Union, open banking took a huge leap forward with the so-called Payment Service Directive 2, which was put into effect in 2018. And under this um, directive, 6,000 banks are becoming API providers. 6,000 banks. So just imagine the situation if those 6,000 banks do completely different things. So no one can really afford to integrate with all of them. And that's why interoperability is a really, really important aspect. And that's why we have FAPI. And this is like a, a point that I believe is important stressing. OAuth is nice and super useful, but is underspecified. So if A and B both use OAuth, that alone is not guaranteed that A and B can talk to each other out of the box. And so part of what you're doing with FAPI is to guarantee that if A and B both support FAPI, then their ability to interoperate out of the box increases. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's the great summary. Yeah. Fantastic. That's great. That's great. So double clicking. Well, like in terms of uh, concrete steps, what do we find inside this uh, FAPI thing? So I would like to mention that we've got two, two versions of FAPI. So we have FAPI version one, and the development of FAPI version one started in 2016, around 2016. And we now have a new version under development, which is called FAPI two, which is the next evolutionary step. I'm going to explain FAPI one uh, to start with. The approach taken is very different between the different versions. And in 2016, as I said, there were, there were a security analysis that showed there were issues in the OAuth protocol. And at that time, the FAPI working group decided to patch those issues using existing OpenID Connect mechanisms. Because the rationale was, at that time, there are products in the market, and for the sake of time, we use what's already there to patch those holes and build a security profile based on that. And that explains how V1 works, right? So for example, it uses ID token as attached signatures to protect the authorization response, just to give, a, give an example. Right, and so and just to clarify, because a lot of people see the difference between OAuth and OpenID Connect as a blurry thing. OpenID Connect has extra mechanisms like use of nonces, attach and similar that uh, help to protect message exchanges that off-core doesn't have. So when you say that uh, you use what's already there, are you saying that you use some of those OpenID native mechanisms in scenarios that are more typically off, like calling APIs rather than signing in? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, OpenID and the OpenID Foundation is focused around identity, right? Building protocols to allow parties to exchange identity data, whereas OAuth is about, is about API authorization. So the FAPI working group is very special because we're building profiles for API authorization. But as you pointed out correctly, in the first version, we use native 
OpenID Connect mechanism to reinforce the API authorization. Great. And you mentioned the uh, ID token and detached signature. Uh, can you spend a few moments to expand on what a detached signature is? Yeah, sure. OpenID Connect has a uh, special response type. So the response type is the mechanism in OAuth to specify what comes back from the authorization endpoint. And what people typically use these days is the authorization code, which is the response type code. And in, in FAPI version one, we use the response type code ID token, which causes the authorization server to also add a JOT, the ID token, to the response. That JOT typically contains identity data about the user, but when it is sent through the front channel, it also contains hashes of other parameters of the response, especially a hash of the code, a hash of the state, and so on. And if you put this all together, then this means the ID token, which is a, one of the parameter, is a, a signature object, which includes references to other request or response parameters. And that's why it is a detached signature. It, it's, it's a bit complex, but in the end, it prevents injection attacks. So for example, if an attacker tries to uh, inject a code that does not belong to that response, uh, the application can detect that. No, it's, it is complicated, but you explained it really nicely. So I, if I get my ID token and it comes down, this ID token contains the hash of the code. If anyone messes with the code, then when I do check the hash that is inside of the signed token and I see a discrepancy, then I now can detect that someone injected, whereas without that ID token with its signature, I would not have been able to. Exactly. And that, that was one of the problems in, in OAuth that at that time, there was no mechanism natively built in OAuth to detect this kind of, of attack. And there is another attack, the mix-up attack, and uh, the ID token also helps to detect this attack because as a countermeasure, I need to understand what authorization server sent the authorization response. And the ID token has a claim which is called issuer, ISS, and that claim is used to, to determine what authorization server sent the response. So both together, the detached signature and the issuer claim help to get rid of a lot of attack angles that existed at that time with, with traditional OAuth. Nice. Very, very, very nice. Great. So as a um, casual observer, if I open the fapi.openid.net, I see that uh, it looks like V1 is uh, subdivided in uh, some macro areas. Can you tell me a bit more about what those areas are? Yeah, sure. We have two different profiles for different security levels. One was what we, we used to call the read profile and it's still on the, on the website, it's read. And the other one is a read write. And the difference being that the assumption is that, uh, and keep bear in mind, uh, we initially uh, focused on protecting uh, financial APIs. Now it's called financial grade APIs because the mechanism can be used for other contexts as well as e-health and so on. But uh, going back to the to the uh, to the origins, and the assumption was that accessing uh, uh, read-only APIs requires less security than accessing read-write APIs, let's set, let's uh, such as APIs for initiating payments. And the read the read is a really in, in V1 is a really really basic profile. It uses Pixie uh, for um, code replay detection. It uses exact redirect UI matching. Uh, for preventing leakage and impersonation, and uh, it it uh, recommends use of OIDC or OAuth metadata for having a robust mechanism to determine all the endpoints. Uh, 
Whereas the read-write is much more comprehensive. Um, it is restricted to confidential clients. It uses um, signed request objects to prevent tampering of the request. That like they sign the request object is not something that is very common. That, or but it's not part of the core. So what is it? The signed request object, um, in traditional OAuth, all the request parameters are sent as UI query parameters. They are just added to the URL and are sent to the authorization endpoint. This means an attacker that passes as a user of the application can modify that strings. And for example, swap scope values and inject scope values that refer to payments of another person. In order to prevent that, um, the, the signed request objects puts all those data in a JSON object which is a, a JOT, and that JOT is signed and then sent over the wire through the browser instead of the unsigned data. Great. And, and this is all in its own specification, right? When we started, um, the signed request object was part of the Open ID Connect core specification. Meanwhile, the authors, and Netsaki Mura and John Bradley, brought this part to the ITF, and it is a draft. I think that's in, in working group, no, in uh, short, shortly before publication at the um, IATF. It's called JOT Secured Authorization Quests. So it's the famous JARM. Okay, great. Jarm. So we'll add a link to the show notes to make sure that uh, people want to know more about how this works. So that's great. Fantastic. So this is a uh, one more manifestation of a higher security that is offered by this profile. You can't mess with the request because now the parameters are signed. So if you try to add the scope, the signature doesn't work and the authorization server not. So fantastic, great. Please continue, sorry for the interruption. No, 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 no problem. So I could talk about FAPI for hours and <laughs> cannot stop talking. So it's, it's good if you interrupt me. No, it's good. You are saying uh, like the things that uh, we find in the read-write profile. So yeah. those are all uh, really useful things. So so let's assume the request and then hit the authorization server. On the way back, we also want to detect and prevent modifications and tampering and injections. And that's why we, we use the before-mentioned ID token as a detached signature. So in mm -hmm. the same way as we protect the request with a signature, we also protect the response with a signature. And we've got two options for that. Either the application uses the ID token from OpenID Connect, or there's another mechanism, which is called JARM, which stands for JOT Secured Authorization Response Mode. All right. And where, where does this one live? <laughs> Like is it, it in OpenID or is it in ITF? It lives. It lives in the FAPI working group. It lives in the FAPI working group, and it. We haven't brought it to to the ITF yet. We are we are we are considering that, but we for for the time being it it lives in FAPI and is part of the read write profile, and it's a bit simpler than ID token because it just puts in the same way as JAR puts the request in a JOT, it puts the response in a JOT. That's basically it is. So no hashes to be calculated. You just take the JOT, you put all the response parameter in it. It's part of our attempt over the evolution of the, of the, of the security profile to make things simpler for developers, with, which ultimately ended up with V2, which is much simpler than what we see today in, v, in V1. That makes a lot of sense. And I know that the, in the 
in this context, you have also other measures like uh, sender constraint or like the private jots. Uh, can you mention some of that as well? Yeah, sure. Um, as I mentioned, the read-write profile is restricted to confidential clients, which makes a lot of sense because in those security-sensitive scenarios, you want to be damn sure that you're talking to the right client. And in that context, Fappy read-write also recommends or requires the client to use public key-based cryptography for authentication. So, but you either use MTLS or you use private key JWT to authenticate, which in turn also means the AS or secrets cannot leak at the AS and you have kind of a non-repudiation functionality. And also based on, on, on public key crypto, the access tokens that are being issued are bound to the public and the private key under the control of the client, which is called sender constraint access tokens. And that's a really nice feature because that means if a access token is used to request a certain resource, the sender, the client, needs to demonstrate possession of the private key towards the resource server. If it is unable to demonstrate that possession, the resource server will just refuse to process the request, which means if an access token leaks, an attacker cannot use and, and, and abuse that access token without also getting access to the private key that is well protected with the client. That's really powerful. This is uh, one of the things that uh, high-risk customers always ask for. And uh, one of the reasons for which uh, a lot of people looked at off with suspicion because they didn't have this feature. But now, thanks to the mechanism you described, uh, uh, we do. And we did explore the sender constraint in general with Brian Campbell in the very first episode of the show. So for people that are more interested in a deeper uh, look in this aspect, I'd encourage them to check out that uh, episode. But just to do like my uh, basic summary, uh, the idea is that uh, we restrict it to confidential clients, hence confidential clients must have credentials associated. And uh, the traditional, as you said, grandfather clients would normally just use a string, a shared secret, but in here, we raise the bar by saying, no, in order to authenticate yourself as a client of the authorization server, you must use public key cryptography. And that uh, comes with a lot of guarantees, as in uh, the key never really travels, but only the effect of having used the key. And then all the nice potential consequences, such as uh, binding the, to the access tokens as well. So fantastic. That sounds really, really powerful. I heard in some discussions that... Uh, there is, oh, like, there is this uh, new thing, uh, Depop, which we also mentioned with Brian, which is another way of binding tokens to, to a client. Do you think it's possible that in the future that might be one mechanism that FAPI also recognizes alongside MTLS? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, we were struggling uh, for a couple of years to really come up with a, a suitable simple and broadly uh, supported mechanism for sender constraining. There was never a discussion whether that is needed, right? But I, I, you might remember uh, a token binding back in the days. So we all bet on, on, on token binding uh, when, when FAPI1 was, was, was designed. No, you didn't bet on that? <laughs> well, I was uh, famous in Microsoft for being uh, a downer because every time there was a meeting uh, on uh, token binding, I was always the one saying, guys, you are uh, expecting way too many planets to align and uh, it won't happen. Like, uh, 
And uh, don't tell John Bradley <laughs> because uh, he, he, he is a really emotionally invested in uh, token binding. But uh, I never believed it would happen. Whereas first time I've, uh, I heard about the idea of Depop back in Stuttgart, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is going to be it. Yeah, I mean, um, all, even though John was a real evangelist of token binding, he also was part of the team that did the MTLS specification. Um, I, I, at that time, used to refer to that as poor man's token binding, um, but it works, right? That's the difference. There are not so many parameters that need to really have the right value uh, to make it happen. But we also need to admit that MTLS is, for some deployments, really, really hard to use. And it's so... Um, and we use it at yes.com and we are really, really happy with that. But Depop is a good complement. And we have a discussion in the FAPI working group to adopt uh, Depop as part of FAPI 2. And I think it makes a lot of sense to have private key JWT as the authentication mechanism uh, with application level signature and to have Depop as an alternative to MTLS for, for doing sender constraining. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's great. That's fantastic to hear. So there was this third component of FAPI, which uh, has this nice uh, acronym, SIBA. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about what SIBA is, uh, how it came to be, all of that? Yeah, sure. SIBA stands for Client Initiated Backend Authentication. Very impressive. Yeah. SIBA goes, goes way back to the Moderna Working Group at the OpenID Foundation that initially was um, set up to build or to provide mobile network operators that want to become identity providers with the respective specifications. And that was in a, in a project together with GSMA called Mobile Connect. And um, CBA, CBA uh, was designed to address use cases that are different than the usual web redirect-based flow. So for example, let's imagine you're calling uh, the call center of your um, a mobile operator or your financial institution and uh, the agent wants to authenticate you. So that's a, that's a scenario where you can't use, obviously, um, a web browser flow. So in, instead, the agent could initiate a flow, and then you get a callback on your, on your device on a mobile app, and you see a content screen, and, and you can confirm or refuse that request. That's basically what SIBA what, what does. And there are other scenarios, and that's the reason uh, why the FAPI working group uh, did a profile of the SIBA prof- uh, spec, uh, because in the financial area, there are scenarios like um, point of sales payments that you could conduct with your smartphone. So the, 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 the transaction is initiated on a post terminal and then you get a notification on your mobile phone and then you, you can approve that uh, transaction or kiosk scenarios. So um, ATM like machines where you initiate a transaction, but you want to conduct the authentication on your device because you do not trust uh, this kiosk uh, that it really conducts uh, the transaction well or is not somehow hacked or something like that and that's that's the that's the kind of scenarios uh Siba is built for yeah it's 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 a great it's a great great complementary grant type to to the universal code grant type for special scenarios and people people need to keep that in mind because the security characteristics of Siba is not as good as of the OAuth code flow simply because you lose the the binding to a certain session on a device because you have a split you have a split device scenario right a con- so-called consumption device and a uh, an authentication device and that's that's what people need to keep in mind that's one of the reasons why there is uh, some me- mechanics in the protocol to provide that binding uh, to the user in order to prevent phishing and that's 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 one area where the FAPI working group 
added extensions to the CBA protocol to make sure that CBA is not used uh, for phishing attacks. Another peculiarity that uh, I know uh, stimulates the imagination of people is that SIBA uh, added uh, a, an extra endpoint to the physician server, right? It did, yeah. Well, what is it and what does it do? Then the new endpoint is used to initiate the SIBA transaction because what basically is going to happen, the client somehow kicks off the transaction with the authorization server and in the next step, it either gets an access token or an error. But between between those events, um, yeah, time elapses, right? I mean, this is one event, then something happens somewhere at the device of the user, and then either you get you get a message back, an event back, or you you're polling for the result. So by no means, this isn't by no means a blocking a blocking request, because if it would be a blocking request, you would need to wait for minutes potentially to succeed. That's why you need two different interactions with the AS, and the second interaction with the ES is a standard token request because in the end, it results in an access token being issued. That makes a lot of sense. It's just a new grant type. The first one is special because um, it has special parameters that are only used for SIBA. For example, an identifier for the user because since this is a backend request and we have a split screen scenario, you need to somehow identify the user towards the ES because the AS has no mechanism to ask the user for a username, which is quite different to the code flow. In the code flow, you don't need to know who is going to, to log into the AS because it's just a redirect and then the AS, okay, will find out. In SIBA, this is different. So you need this parameter and you need other parameters. And from a design perspective, it does not make sense to overload an existing endpoint because what endpoint should you have been using? Um, the token endpoint? Well, the token endpoint typically gives you an access token. You don't want to get an access token. You want to get a handle for the transaction. The authorization endpoint, well, the authorization endpoint expects a redirect UI, a nonce, a code challenge. Those are parameters that are required for securing the flow in the browser. Uh, they are not needed for a SIBA back-channel request. That's the reason why the decision was made to make it a new endpoint. It makes complete sense. I think it was... a uh... The right decision, yeah. Over, overloading that stuff would have made, uh, would have been messy for no, no reason. I mean, we have, we had to, I, mean, I, I was part of that discussion initially, and John Bradley was as well, and, and we, we really considered to use the authorization endpoint, and I pointed out, what do we do with the redirect UI? That doesn't make sense at all. So let's, let's I mean, people are, are afraid of introducing new endpoints. I, under, I understand that. But, I mean, this is the way extensibility works in OAuth, and it doesn't hurt. No, absolutely. And, uh, also, like it's just cleaner. Like as uh, someone who owns a product that needs to do a job, the the least amount of uh, overload means that it's more maintainable. It's clearer. Like it's easier to uh, detangle the various code paths. So uh, I think it was a good decision. On that note, the, all these was uh, um, all the things that uh, we mentioned. You mentioned it through the lens of V1. But you mentioned that uh, V2 is all, your guys are already working on V2, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. We did uh, we won uh, it basically in 16, 17, 18, and also helped different organizations in the open banking space to adopt it, uh, namely open banking in, in, in the UK, for example, and others uh, such as CDR in Australia. In 2019, we leaned back and did an analysis. Because around that time, there were a lot of existing implementations of different competing standards in the European Union, 
and we try to gather what's what, what are they doing and what can we learn from that. And I, I gave a presentation about that in, at Identiverse last year. And the result was, first of all, there was a gap in FAPI 1. Because, I mean, the security was, was okay, but we learned that, especially in open banking, the, um, the authorization requests typically contain very complex data. In traditional OAuth, you've got simple scope values, read, write, email, something like that. In open banking, the relying party or the client typically asks for access to a number of accounts, and they really give the the numbers of those accounts, and they ask for read access to the balance of one account and read access to transactions for another account. And when it comes to payments, even more complex because you have to say, okay, what's the what's the uh, what's the beneficiary, what's the currency, what's the value, what's the reason, and so on. So that is quite complex, but it is required by regulation. And what we learned is that most people, no, none, none of the implementation we, we analyzed uses scopes for that, which is not a surprise because if you want to encode that in a, in, a, in a simple string, you're going mad. So all of them, all of them use JSON of, of one, one kind or the other. Some use resources that are lodged with the ES, others just send the JSON in the authorization request. And we took, okay, if we really want to come up with interoperability for the authorization, we need to somehow also define mechanisms for conveying this kind of rich authorization. That was the first learning. The second learning was why we, we had started to work on FAPI. The OAuth working group had started to work on the OAuth security best current practice. So the OAuth working group tried to find a way to cope with the security issues that had been found in 2015-16 in a way that's native to OAuth, right? We wanted to include those mechanisms, those simple or native OAuth mechanisms in, in, in FAPI as well. And the third learning was, well, the profile we had developed was useful and interesting for people in other sectors than the financial industry, uh, namely e-health, e-government, and so on. So, and the bottom line is, we thought it would be a good idea to develop a V2 of FAPI that is simpler to use for developers, that is more comprehensive by also covering complex authorization transactions and grant management lifecycle or lifecycle of grants. So what we did is we changed the baseline profile or the read profile and made it a single profile that fulfills all the requirements for the usual or typical open banking application. And what we did is we removed the signed request object that we talked about earlier and replaced that by a simpler mechanism, which is called pushed authorization request. What's the difference? The difference is if you send a traditional authorization request to the authorization server, you just add UI query parameters, simple. Pushed authorization of request uses exactly the same encoding but sends the request to a backend interface via a TLS-protected connection. That's really simple to implement, much simpler than a signature, and it uses the same encoding, but the security effect is dramatic because there is no way to tamper with the request content in the front channel because the content is not going through the front channel. It gives you that random number and you refer to that data 
data package in, in the request in the front channel. So that was the first significant change. We got rid of the, of the signed request object and replaced it by something that is much simpler to use. You can use that with your Postman. You don't need to have a crypto library. Very nice. Yeah. And it also gives you another feature that most people uh, oversee. You can authenticate the client before the user interaction starts, which means you can be really sure in the user consent that you're talking to the real client because you already authenticated the client. As part of that uh, first step. It makes a lot of Exactly. So we've, and, and, and that's, that's really, I really haven't really experienced that in my career very often that you replace something complex with something simpler that is more powerful. It's like the, my favorite metaphor for that kind of stuff is uh, Roman numerals versus Arabic numerals. It's like as soon as you introduce, uh, like I, as an Italian, I had to play with Roman numbers uh, in school and trying to do operations with Roman numbers. It's so hard, whereas uh, super easy position stuff. But anyway, this is super interesting. And I think we might consider having uh, another episode specifically about uh, V2. But uh, unfortunately, our time is uh, uh, running out. So before we part ways, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the call to action for listeners should be? Like, uh, what should people do with V1? What should people do with V2? Uh, are there things like, uh, if I want to implement it, what are the things that I, that can help me, all of that stuff? Yeah, first of all, just to complete that, um, what we also added is a mechanism for JSON-based authorization request data, which also allows to, to really fix that gap, right? When it comes to the different versions, um, if, you, if you're looking for security profile, um, then your options are to use V1, which is really mature, which is um, supported by a lot of products. We have a conformance test suite, so most of those products also uh, are self-certified, which is really great. V1 is being adopted by uh, not only OBUK, but FTX and, and CDR in Australia, which, which is a really a great success. Um, on the other hand, uh, V2 is much, much simpler to use as we, as, we just, as we just revealed. So from my perspective, the people responsible for making the decision in a certain deployment, a certain scheme or whatever, should take a look on those and then just make a decision based on the cos and the pros and cons that I just illustrated. However, when it comes to more complex authorization requests and grant management, we one doesn't have a solution. So you would need to implement your custom solution. So if you want to have a solution, take a look on what V2 provides you with. We at Yes.com did that because we are running not only identity uh, services, but also use OAuth for authorization. And uh, we first implemented the solution we want style with a proprietary solution for the authorization request data. And we decided one year ago when we saw the first version of FAPI2 baseline, well, this is so much simpler. Let's, let's go for it. And... Um, I'm so happy we made that decision one year ago because now we have the product in the market and it's so super easy and you can implement that on top of existing products. So that's, that's, that's my take on V1 versus V2. Whatever people do, whether they choose or pick V1 or V2, they can be sure everything that's in the profile is based on the collective experience of a lot of really, really bright people. That's very important, I think. Yeah, let's really make a big difference. So I guess that if I can try once again to summarize, 
if people needed to interoperate with uh, an existing system, then they should probably look at what that system supports. So, but uh, if instead of a, like you described, you own your API, you are exposing them, you are not consuming them, then uh, you are in the position to pick the latest and greatest, which is, of course, by definition, better than the one. So I guess that uh, other people that own exposing APIs can uh, can follow your advice as well. Yeah, in the end, it's the, it's the people that own the API that can make that decision, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much, Thorsten, for your time. It was uh, really, really interesting and so much to unpack in there. And I am uh, pretty sure that they will ask you to come back because uh, you appear to be working on all the most interesting things that are going on right now. So expect one uh, extra email from me not long from now. <laughs> so thanks again. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for having me here. It was really a pleasure to discuss with you. And yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for your email. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Until next time. The OpenID Foundation is a proud sponsor of the Identity Unlocked podcast. Since its formation in 2007, the Foundation has committed to promoting, protecting, and advancing the OpenID community and technologies. Please consider joining the Foundation and contributing to current working groups. To learn more about the OIDF, please visit www.openid.net. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Wolowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero. Copyright 2020, Of Zero Incorporated, all rights reserved.